the one and only Cliff Richard and the Hi, this is David Ghosty Wills, and welcome to episode 24 of the We Say Yeah podcast, a monthly unofficial Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP in chronological order. Episode 24 means it's our two-year anniversary, and fittingly, we have a very special episode for you this month as we celebrate the 60th anniversary of The Shadow's Greatest Hits LP. And who better to join us to go track by track discussing every song in detail on this record than one of the architects of that sound that we all love so much, Bruce Welch of The Shadows is our guest today. This is a really fun interview. We talk about all sorts of stuff along the way. And this is, as I'm sure you noticed, now that you've downloaded it, our longest episode ever, but with good reason. And we're going to draw out the suspense a little longer by taking a look back at some of the comments and reactions from last month's episode, where we talked about the Holiday Carnival EP and reviewed the singles for Foot Tapper, Atlantis, and Lucky Lips with our guest Vic Rust and bonus guest Elisa Shaw. Roger Cook over on our Podbean page says, These are a great listen. I'm already familiar with the music, but the input from the expert guests and the discussions are often illuminating. Very well hosted, too. Well, thank you so much, Roger. I appreciate that. On the We Say Yeah Facebook page, Ian Firth writes, So enjoy this month's show. Holiday Carnival is one of my favorite EPs, and I'm pleased that so many others appreciate Cliff's B-sides, and I wonder is one of the best. I know a lot of fans would appreciate a box set of them. Yeah, I certainly would. But until that happens, I will just have to listen to the seven-CD set I made for myself. Once again, thanks for these shows. I really look forward to them. Thank you so much, Ian. And finally, Tony writes, Blackpool and its ABC opening for Holiday Carnival in 63, sadly now just a distant memory as the ABC was demolished just a few years ago. Them memories, he writes with a big heart sign. And you know, that's something that we often talk about on this show. It seems like everything that was ever worth a damn is gone. But um, you know what? We can always remember it here on this uh, podcast and on Facebook and online where everybody shares memories. And if you want to contribute, maybe drop us a line with an email or a comment on the Facebook page, here's what you do. The email address is we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter. It's we say yeah pod. And on Facebook, it's just we say yeah. Look for the we say yeah Facebook page. It's always buzzing with discussion and heavy research into records and photos and things that were happening in the time period we've been discussing and all sorts of stuff. It's nerd heaven for Cliff Richard and Shadows fans. All right, without any further delay, I had the great privilege to chat with Bruce Welch for over an hour as we went track by track through 1963's The Shadow's Greatest Hits LP. There's a lot of great information here, a lot of side discussions about... Uh, Bruce meeting other members of the Shadows and meeting Cliff and working with Nori Paramore and hanging out at the Two Eyes Coffee Bar. And there's a lot of stuff on here and a lot of laughs, too. So enjoy. (laughs) 
Every time I have a guest on this podcast, I always open by asking them, how did they become a fan of Cliff Richard and the Shadows? I don't have to do that for this particular (laughs) interview. But I've often wondered, do you ever go back and listen to early recordings like the ones we're going to be discussing today? Very rarely, but I did yesterday, to be honest. Okay. Because we, we recorded so many tunes, David, I think six or seven hundred tunes altogether, that I can't remember uh, things. You know, people say to me, well, you must know what the B-side of so-and-so was. And I go, no, because <laughs> there were so many of them. <laughs> right, of course, of course. Yeah. I, I heard this quote from John Lennon, and I wonder if the same holds true also for mm-hmm. you. He said that when he listened to Beatles records, of course, at this point, it was only 10 years after the Beatles that he was being asked. Yes. He said all he remembers is the session, so he really can't enjoy it the way the listener can. Correct. Yeah, because you remember uh, all the mistakes you made on the session until you got the final take, that sort of thing. Maybe you were, maybe the group was having an argument that day. Could be anything. Could be anything. But I know what he means. David Jacobs presents the awards to the Shadows. They're voted the top British small instrumental group. So the particular release we're going to talk about today and talk about some of these tracks is called The Shadows' Greatest Hits. There have been so many variations uh, of albums and compilations released through the years, but this one was released in June of 1963. This is the first full-length Greatest Hits compilation that EMI ever released uh, for The Shadows, and it was a huge success. It peaked at number two, Mm -hmm. and it was on the charts for 56 weeks. Which Sounds good to me. (laughs) I must ring my accountant. (laughs) So I wanted to talk about the first track on the album, and it's a biggie. Mm -hmm. It's Apache, released on July 8th, 1960. And there are so many stories on the internet, I'm sure you know, that are not true or are apocryphal. And the story that circulates is that Jerry Lorden demoed this song to you on ukulele. Is this true? It's absolutely correct, David. We were touring. Oh. We were touring in April of 1960, Cliff in the Shadows. And uh, we had a support act called Jerry Lorden, who was a singer-songwriter. He'd had a couple of small hits. And we had had, the Shadows had had, three flops by then. We had a vocal, uh, two vocals and an instrumental. And we were on the coach, and he came to the front. He said, are you guys going to need any more singles? Are you going to need a, another tune? I said, yeah, we actually were due for one now. Because in those days, you released a single every three months. So he said, can I play you something? And I said, we said, yeah. So he went to the back of the bus, brought this, uh, like, a, like a large ukulele out, started playing the rhythm, you know, jing, 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 jing. And then he went down, 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 down. 
etc. And Hank and I went, <laughs> oh, we love that. We love that. Can we, can we play it to our producer, who is Nori Paramore? And evidently, I found this out years later, David, Jerry Lorden, who played it to Jed Harris the day before um, to sort of sound us out. And Jet said, you've got to play it to Hank and Bruce, so, which he did. Um, we recorded it. Well, we recorded it. We took it to Norrie Paramore. We went to the famous Abbey Road Studios. And uh, Norrie, our producer, who was, you know, we were kids then. We were nearly 18. And uh, our producer was probably about 45. So he was like your dad. Right. We, we Like our father, you know, that sort of stuff. And he said, guys, we need a new single, as you know. He said, I've chosen this tune called Quartermaster Stores. That's going to be the A side. So he said, okay. And, I, and he said, an Apache, the thing you sent me, can be the B, the B side. So we recorded both the tunes in one afternoon. Apache just really stood out. It was so different. Hank with his Echo Box and his Stratocaster and his the, the Vox and me on acoustic. And uh, he said, no, that's great. He said, the um, Quartermaster Stores is going to be the A side. And we said, Nori, please, it's, you know, this is Apache's really special. I mean, you know, to be fair, Quartermaster Stores is a good record, but yes. not in the class of Apache. So he said, I tell you what I'll do, boys. He used to call us boys. He said, I'll take it home and play it to my two daughters and we'll see what they say. So he went, took it home, played it to his kids. And they chose Apache. Now, how's that for fate? Yeah. <laughs> you sound like his, his daughter should have been in the A&R department. Uh, exactly. <laughs> they probably are now. <laughs> and the song was a huge smash, number one record, and you knocked your singer off the number one spot. Well, ironic. Um, there was a Cliff in the Shadows tune called Please Don't Tease, which I wrote was number one at the time. Cliff had been about f three or four weeks number one. And Apache knocked our own record off the top. And I think we were number one for about five or six weeks and uh, sold a million records. You know, I'm an American, obviously, and this might be a sore subject for you, but here in the U.S., a cover version by Jorgen Ingman became a hit rather than your version. Were you guys... I'm going to cut this interview now, David. <laughs> were you guys <laughs> a little upset about that? Listen... We're still a little upset, you know, 63 years later, we're still upset. Yes, Jorgen Ingman heard uh, our version, obviously the Shadows version, and added, he added some noise, uh, like um, arrow noises with his echo box, like uh, down, 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 right. that sort of stuff. And he sold a million at number one in America, and we didn't, never made it there. So I think in, in, uh, in a nutshell, that's why the Shadows never made Never cracked America. The, Apart from the virtues, which we don't talk about, but we will. <laughs> well, the happy ending to that story is that I think now rock and roll fans, certainly in America, when they think of Apache, they do think of your version of it. I think, really? yeah, I think at the time people thought of the Jorgen Ingman because that was what was happening at that moment. Yeah. But over time, People, I think, here in America that are rock fans associate Apache with you guys. So you win in the end. Well, can we have the royalties, please? Yeah, I was going to say, maybe not financially, <laughs> but spiritually, you, you spiritually, win in the end. Yeah, yeah. We don't do spiritually, we do royalties. 
<laughs> so the next cut on this album is another huge hit, a number five hit, written by Michael Carr, Man of Mystery. And this came out in November of 1960. This is the theme to a film series called the Edgar Wallace Mysteries. Correct. And I've noticed that the Shadows do a lot of movie themes and songs associated with films. Were you guys film buffs? No, we didn't. Um, we didn't particularly know. We knew of uh, the Man of Mystery theme. Obviously, it wasn't the Shadows playing it, but the, the same tune. Right. Um, was written by an, a very old, very successful proper songwriter he'd written a song called south of the border i don't know if you know the song south of the border Sure, i love that song. and um he took me to the pub as you do you know you were nearly 18 and he said i've got this tune i don't you know it was suit the shadows i think and he played me the demo of of man of mystery and i loved it obviously loved the melody took it back to the guys we loved the melody uh the, the tv show was still running it was on every week black and white and um we recorded it, and that, of course, was our second hit. You know what it reminds me of when I hear it? I, I know it's 1960. The James Bond series wouldn't be until two years later, but I feel like the sound of this anticipates the spy movie sound. Yeah. Well, it's first of all, it's a great melody. It's a great melody. Hank's guitar, uh, and I keep coming back to the sound of his guitar, the Stratocaster with his echo box was just a stunning sound. No, no one had that sound at the time, which is why I think the Shadows you know, made it our own uh, big thing. It carries over into the next cut on the album, which is The Stranger, written by Bill Crompton and Stan Jones. Most Shadows fans, certainly the ones that I'm in contact with, tend to be guitar players themselves. Mm -hmm. I am I'm not a guitar player. I couldn't tell you anything about a guitar. So I'm really only listening for melody, Correct. performance, and arrangement. So, And I, I always feel like the Shadows always try something experimental. There's always something a little unique Mm. about arrangements was that something that you guys worked on like we have to make things different you know, well you know we would sit you know we'd get the tune whatever the tune was and we would um just sit in a room a, you know rehearsal room and work it out you know and uh usually during those sessions i mean we used to write the same way we would sit together in the room hank would always come up with some classic little bits he's a fantastic guitar player you know bear in mind he we were 16 when we started, so he was just on it, on it. And the sound that he 
that he discovered, you know, with the Echo Box and the, the Box, as I say, Box AC30 and the famous Stratocaster. That was his sound, and that became the Shadows sound. And uh, we just used to work out the arrangements in, in, the, in dressing rooms or rehearsal rooms. And in fact, um, The Stranger was put out uh, with Man of Mystery as what we in England, we call it a double A side. Right. You know, so you could take your pick which one you like the best. But in a, in a way, years later, we realized that this can cut your sales down because some people want to go and buy The Stranger. So they tell the record store, we've come in for The Stranger. And probably the most of them would go and say, we want Man of Mystery by The Shadows, you know. So it was a double A, and um, you can tell me where I went in the charts. Man of Mystery backed with The Stranger goes to number five. Yeah. yeah the yeah. next cut on this album is another top 10 hit. This one went to number six. It's FBI. <laughs> This is credited to your manager, Peter Gormley, but in fact, you guys wrote this song, right? We, we did. We did. To your millions of listeners, <laughs> we were just running out of a publishing deal, which wasn't too great. Um, so we were starting The Shadows Music. We, we were starting our own company called The Shadows Music, which we still have today. So we were still under contract. Don't tell any lawyers this, by the way. <laughs> We were still, we were still under contract to the old deal, so Peter Gormley said, "I'll write it," but actually, Hank, myself, and Jet wrote it. When it's been talked about on this podcast, people have pointed out that it has kind of a proto ska feel to it. You know that boom, ba jinga, boom, ba jinga, boom. That's, that's, that, that's uh, my rhythm part, mate. That's the best part of the whole song. Yes. <laughs> dinky, 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 dinky. Right. That's, that's the best bit. And then the melody comes in. <laughs> so the flip of that is also on this Shadow's Greatest Hits, Midnight, written by you and Hank. As I understand it, you were playing Sleepwalk mm -hmm. um, live and got tired of playing it. This is how the story goes. Just got tired of it and said, we'll do something similar. Well, isn't that a great, isn't that a great phrase? You know, so many people have done something similar to the number one <laughs> record of the time. Sleepwalk by Santo and Johnny is a fantastic record. First time we'd heard in the UK, um, Pedal Steel. Right. You know, the, the guitar sound. And, and Hank and I said, well, wouldn't it be nice to write something like that? Um, not steal it, but it's the same chord sequence. It's in the same key, near enough. 
near enough that Santa and Johnny's lawyers had never actually contacted us. Right, right. The shadow sound was Hank's guitar sound, the Fender Strat, with the echo box, the Italian echo box, and the AC30. And I had borrowed Cliff's Gibson J200 for the Apache session. And the rhythm sound on Apache, if I may say so, sounds fantastic. It's huge. The, the rhythm guitar sounds big. So I tended to use uh, um, acoustic guitar on all the biggest hits. And I, I didn't use it to get back to uh, midnight. I didn't use it on midnight. I don't know why, because in those days, I know it sounds silly talking to an American where all the great studios came from, all the great sounds. Abbey Road in 1960 didn't have the equipment that it does now, or even when the Beatles were there. Um, so I used electric on this, but it just sounds like a hum. My rhythm part in the back is just like a hum, and I, I really didn't like it. So I, after this, I went back to acoustic absolutely most of the time. Yeah, both sounds, again, speaking from the point of view of somebody who doesn't play guitar and, and just listening for the music and the performance and the arrangement, yeah. but both sounds, the Fender Strat and your acoustic, really complement each other. Yeah. So we move on to The Frightened City, written by your producer we mentioned earlier, Nori Paramore. This is number three, a number three hit. It's from the 1961 film with a young Sean Connery. Uh, oh, it's, your version was not in the film. Nori Paramore's orchestra did the uh, yep. version in the film. But I'm starting to think that Nori Paramore might not get the credit he deserves as a producer these days. You know, I don't hear him mentioned yeah. in the well, same breath as like a George Martin or something. Well, I mean, the problem, David, is you know anyone after coming after George Martin would have had a hard time um, making a name for themselves as a producer. But before George Martin, Norrie Paramore was huge. First of all, he was a pianist. He was in the forces, I guess, um, an arranger. And in the UK, there was a girl called, I'm talking about the mid-50s, like in 1955, mm -hmm. there was a girl called Ruby Murray. And she had five in the English top 10 at one stage, all produced by Nori Paramore. Then he signed Cliff. He signed Cliff Richard. Cliff kept badgering him about, well, you should listen to my band, uh, Nori, please listen to my group. And then he listened to The Shadows and he signed us. And we had so many hits with Nori. I mean, uh, I think all together, I think Cliff Richard and The Shadows, I think we, The Shadows had about 33 hits. I think we had 32, I think, with Cliff, mm -hmm. uh, all produced by Norrie. He was just such a great musician. He was very adept. When we were looking for new material, wondering what were going to be the next single or a couple of album tracks or a B-side, he would always just sidle up in Abbey Road and say, um, I've got a tune you might like. 
guys, can I play it to you? And of course, he played us, uh, you know, three or four hits. Right. You know, <laughs> um, so there wasn't there wasn't a particular um, thing that we were must we you know we're going to have to record famous uh, tunes from films or anything like that. I don't think at the time when Norrie played as a demo, finally, of Frightened City, I don't think we knew it was in a film. We just loved the tune. He actually made a demo with a guitarist playing it in a little group so we could understand what the shadows may sound like. You know? So again, this was a, another biggie for all the shadows. You know? When you began producing on your own, and you've produced, I, gosh, I, I couldn't even tell you how many records, I'm sure you could, <laughs> you've produced, <laughs> Was yeah. Nori an influence on you as a producer and maybe in how to work with musicians? Absolutely. I, I had learned from him, as we all did, you know, um, especially his tolerance with, um, he was very tolerant with us. We were so young. I think the first time we walked into Abbey Road, we were just 17. It was like we made a record with Cliff in November 58 called Living Love and Doll. And um, he was very comforting. He, I think he knew we were probably out of our depth. We were a bit sort of overawed by Studio Two. We'd never been in a studio like that before. So he, he was making you very comfortable. And I, I suppose I learned a little bit from that over the, the 10 years before I started to, you know, produce Cliff and uh, Olivia Newton-John and uh, and The Shadows, of course. So the next track on this album, which is the last song on side one, in the good old days when albums had sides, mm. is Contiki by Michael Carr. And I'm assuming this is maybe another song that Nori Paramore thought would be good for you guys? Well, uh, no. Michael Carr thought it would be good if, oh, for okay. us guys. You know, he took me to the pub again. <laughs> so uh, we got two hits out of going to the pub with Michael Carr. And he was very clever this time. He'd made a little demo of this tune in the style of The Shadows, if you like. Small group, lead guitar. And uh, he just said, I, you know, I've got a, a, another tune, I, you know, you might like. And he played me Contiki. And I said, wow, love the tune. Took it to the guys. and. Jet Harris, our bass player, Shadow's bass player, came up with this fantastic sound. He put, he took all the uh, bass off his bass, so his his sound was very toppy, very treble, uh, and he put lots of echo on it. And that's the biggest sound in the Contiki record is Jet's bass. That sounds fantastic. And he also made, he, he also came up with bass parts that you could sing. They were like melodies, you know, usually the bass, any bass player would be just under the melody or just under the song. But with Jets playing, he used to come up with hit bass parts. I've always said they're like hit bass parts. And so his sound on Contiki um, and the little fluff, 
that has been copied millions of times by every guitarist um, in the in the solo of Contiki. Hank made a little fluff. Uh, the interesting thing was that Norrie heard it and said, no, it's fine, guys. That's fine. We're going to do the next song. Anyway, as you probably know, David, it was number one. So can't be bad. Yes, number one hit. I also know that Jet has been mentioned. I think Paul McCartney has mentioned Jet as a huge influence on him. Yeah, yeah. Jet was the first electric bass player in the UK. Um, he was already a stand-up bass player. I mean, when Hank and I met him, we were 16. He was 18, so only two years older than us. But by then, he'd learned stand-up bass. You know, he was a proper bass player. And then when, of course, um, we heard about things like the Fender, you know, Fender bass, we had to get one of those. And uh, Jet did a track... Uh, on the Shadows' first album called Nivram. Right. Nivram, which is Marvin backwards, yeah. if you think about it. And uh, he does a bass solo on that, and it's just beautiful. sounds beautiful. Electric bass. So, yeah, Jet was like a star bass player, even though the general public didn't know his name until the Shadows came. And the story I heard is that he saw you guys on tour. At the time, the Shadows were the Drifters. Yeah. And it was a different different personnel i think at that point you and hank were in the band yeah but there was another bassist right yeah well i'll tell you have you got a minute or two sure i'll tell you the story um hank and i started in a little coffee bar in soho in london called the two eyes coffee bar it was a place that everybody congregated to it was a little it was the uh, everyone was playing in coffee bars playing and singing and it was a place that people would get up and jam. So Hank and I had come from Newcastle from school. And we were the Geordie boys because we we're from Newcastle on time. So we'd be singing all the songs of the day, you know, Elvis, the Everly Brothers, mm. Buddy Holly, all the hits of the day we sang and played. And it was a sort of place, it was just a sweaty little coffee bar. And people would get up and say, do you mind if we, can we get up and play a song with you or a bass? Can I play a couple of numbers on bass or... Can I play a couple of numbers on drums? Or so we said, yeah, you know. And um, Jetso was down there and got up and said, "Can do you mind if I just sit in for a couple of songs?" But a um, few months after that, Cliff Richard came down with his band called the Drifters. Um, Cliff and the Drifters. Now that they were his group, his friends from school, I think. Right. Um, so. Uh, that was in the summer of 1958. Somebody came down. Hank and I were there five or six months every day. It was the only place we knew in London. Um, and meeting musicians, we met Brian Bennett, we met Licorice Locking, we met Jet Harris. And one night we were singing and playing, and this little kid was standing in front of the stage. And when I say little kid, Hank and I were only 16, but this kid was a bit smaller. And he had a little cap on, and he said, can I sit in on drums? Can I do some numbers on drums. And that was Tony Meehan. Mm. They went, wow. <laughs> he was 15. So it was just a, a wannabe type of place. You know, everybody wannabe somebody went to the two eyes. Anyway, Cliff came down one night with his band. Um, off he went. I said, Hank wasn't there that night. I said, God, there was some amazing looking guy in tonight. Hank, he looked like Elvis. You know, he had the sideburns, the hair. He sat great all a bit. And didn't think anything of it. A couple of months went by, went by, and a guy, we were rehearsing in the afternoon, Hank and I, as I say, we didn't have anywhere to go. 
um, a guy came down saying, this would be in September of 58. He said, I'm looking, I've heard about this great guitarist down here playing all, you know, all the rock and roll stuff. Now, to be fair, there were two great guitarists. Hank was one and a guy called Tony Sheridan, mm. who used to have a backing band called The Beatles. You may have heard of him. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, Tony wasn't there. So this guy said, well, I'm, I need a guitarist for Cliff Richards going on tour in three weeks' time. So we said, who's Cliff Richard? We didn't know who Cliff was. But he'd made this record, Move It, fantastic record. So Hank played all the licks of the day. Our guy said, great. He said, will you come around the corner? He said, I'll offer you the job. It's a three-week tour. And Hank said, well, I'll do it if my mate can come along, because he's a great rhythm player. So the guy said, okay. So took us out of the two eyes up to um, uh, a guy making his suits. He started with a famous pink jacket, the sexy pink jacket. Right. Walk up the stairs, Hank and I, pimples and everything, 16, Cliff pimples, 17. And um, he said, would you come back to my home for a like a rehearsal, I guess? So we, Hank, we went back there, played all afternoon played Elvis, Ricky Nelson, the usual stuff, you know, Everly's stuff. And he said, great, I'd love you to do the tour. It's for three weeks. And we did the tour, and that's turned into 60 years. So that's how it began. But So the Drifters were his band, guy on bass, right. guy on bass and drums. Uh, and we became, obviously, rhythm guitar player, lead guitar player. We started the tour in October of 1958 for three weeks, on the same tour, Jet Harris was playing for another act. He was, and Cliff was watching this guy every night. And we said, what a great bass player he is, you know? And we said, well, we know him from the Two Eyes Coffee Bar. And um, when the tour finished, Cliff asked uh, Jet to join his band. So Jet became one of the drifters. And then the drummer, Cliff's friend, wanted to join the Merchant Navy, of all things. And we said, we know a great little drummer. Again, we met him in the two eyes. And that was Tony Meehan. So we became Cliff's Drifters, you know, as Hank, Bruce, Jet and Tony Meehan. And we made a record in the beginning of 59, a single, The Shadows. And we tried to release it in America, in the US. And we got an injunction from, we didn't know the, you know, the black singing group, the Drifters. Sure. Yeah, they were, they were, I think they were number one at the time. They said, you can't use the drifter's name in America. So we thought, yeah, well, fair enough. You know, I think they had There Goes My Baby or something, number one at the time. Right. So Jet and Hank went off to a, a pub. Lots of pubs in the shadow story, by the way. <laughs> they were going to have to come up with a new name. So they went off on their scooters and uh, talking. Jet said, you know, what about the four jets? What about the this? What about the that? This group, that group. And then he said, Jet said, uh, he said, hey, Hank, you know, we're back in Cliff. And and on shows in those days, there was only one spotlight. And that was always on the star of the, whoever the, you know. And in those days, the, the spotlight was on Cliff Richard, obviously. He was the star of the show. And Jet said, we're always in the shadows behind Cliff, the way it was with the, the lighting. And Hank said, that's a great name. That's a great name. Uh, and so we became the Shadows. We changed from the Drifters to the Shadow. And uh, the rest is 
almost history. <laughs> it's history. It's a cool name. I do like the fact that Jet suggested the four Jets. Oh, well, he would. Um, he would, wouldn't he? <laughs> there were you other know, four things which we won't talk about. So I'm going to the UK in November for the first time, having never been. Okay. And one of the stops I want to make in London is the site of the former Two Eyes coffee bar because it's so historic, which now I understand is a fast food uh, it's, place. It's a fish and chip shop. You'll be disappointed. Right. <laughs> right. I'm not going to hear any music, they, I guess. They had a plaque outside, David. They put a plaque up about, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. This was the home of British rock and roll, Cliff Richard, The Shadows, Marty Wilde, um, you know, all these people that came out of the place. And the fish shop owners took it down. Oh. So there's nothing to see, really. But if you do ever come to London, give us a call. I shall. I'll tell you what, when I hit the lottery, I'll turn that into a museum, that place. I'll, I'll buy the <laughs> fish and chip shop. It should. It's ridiculous. Oh, no, no, they put they all they the cellar itself. They knocked the cellar out. Oh. They took the cellar out and put uh, tables and chairs down there for fish and chips. It's a bit of a, a bit of a tragedy. Really. I can, we can yeah. never understand. Uh, you can understand the restaurant being a fish and chip shop, but to take the actual plaque outside the front of it, it says this was the home of British rock and roll. They took it down. Who knows where that is? Mm. Well. Anyway, we'll press on. Side two of this album begins with a song that wasn't a hit. Yeah. Uh, 36, 24, 36, written by The Shadows. Correct. here is that this might be apocryphal, that this is inspired by the measurements of Peter Gormley's secretary. I would assume this would be an estimate. No, no, um, this, this was the, the measurements of Brigitte Bardot. Ah, okay. Who wasn't, who wasn't Peter Gormley's secretary, unfortunately. <laughs> we could have had some fun there. <laughs> right. And you're one of the highest paid actresses in France. What do you think your success is due to? I don't know. You don't think it's got something to do with the sexy parts uh, you play in your films? Oh, yes. Maybe, yes. <laughs> you mentioned to me, this wasn't a hit, but they put it on The Shadow's Greatest Hits, yeah. and I'm assuming that maybe because it was connected to an A-side that was very popular. I've got a feeling it was the B-side, B-side of... Um, Contiki. Contiki. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we didn't mind, obviously. We it, This was a jam session in the studio, as some of our singles were. Um, again, Jet used this lovely hard bass, you know, bass with a tre full treble on that he used on Contiki. And we just jamming in the studio and, and came up, I was on acoustic this time, just came up with this little t 12 bar sort of riff. And Hank came up with all the widdly diddlies, all the yeah. all little bits of tune. Very simple, very, you know, Nice sound from my acoustic, if I may say so. Yes. Um, but good fun. But, but uh, just done in the studio. The next two cuts 
on this album are both from the film The Young Ones and both written by your producer, Nori Paramore. Mm. The first one is The Savage. The second one is my favorite track by The Shadows, Peace Pipe. Yeah, it's a lovely tune, lovely tune. Yeah. But again, Norrie, Norrie said, um, you know, we were going to make this film, uh, or Cliff was making this film. Cliff was a star of it. We knew we were going to be playing something. And and again, Norrie sidled up and said, I've got a couple of tracks here, guys, I'd like you to listen to um, that I've written that, you know, may be in the movie. And of course, one was The Savage and one was Peace Fight. And we recorded both of them. The Savage was a hit. I'm not sure where, top 10, I think. Yeah, number 10. But the story about the Savage is every rhythm guitar player in the world who, who listens to the Shadows try and play my rhythm part on the Savage because it's it's brutal. It's three minutes of a very fast right hand. Mm. It's very hard to play. I don't know how I did it, probably because I was only 19 or something. Um, it's difficult to play it now. But it's uh, they were great tunes, great a great solo from Hank. In the middle, all um, we call it the red light syndrome. We were recording, or oh, something very important, David, on all of these tracks. I haven't mentioned with to do with Abbey Road. We were recording mono, one track. Right. All the hits were mono, one track, which meant we couldn't add another guitar, we couldn't add another harmony or whatever. You know, we had the four guys playing together, and that was it. That was the sound, you know. And um, just Hank would come up with these solos because you couldn't edit. You couldn't stop the, the, the mono track halfway through and say, well, we'll just do that a little bit again, you know, and drop it in. We couldn't do that. Right. So if we made a mistake, we had to do the whole song again, um, which was quite, um, quite hard sometimes. But that was our non-ability at the time, non-ability. But the mono thing is very important very important so you know the four of us played and that was the record there were no no mixing we went upstairs in the abbey road and he would say this is it boys you've just played it this is it so no mixing no agonizing whether the bass drum's loud enough or more rhythm guitar or lead guitar we just played it and that's the record amazing it is amazing and i think about all of these recordings we're talking about are all made in a relatively short period of time, 1960 mm. through uh, er, late 62. And here you are recording, you know, one take, one track. Nowadays, there's an endless possibilities, right? There's hundreds and hundreds of tracks. Hundreds. And hundreds. it takes 
it takes three years to get anything done. <laughs> well, what I was getting at with the, with the hang thing is these days, uh, as you know, because you're a pro, so you have an unlimited track. So what happens when usually when a, the guitar solo in any record that you love, you know, what a fantastic guitar solo that is. Normally, the lead guitarist may have done three or four uh, passes on that, tr on the, you know, three or four bits of solo. And then the producer will uh, uh, put them together, this bit from that one, this bit from that. In the mono days with Hank, he just did it. You know, we were halfway through the song, right, it's the solo, Hank. And he came up with all this fantastic stuff, especially like on The Savage, for instance. Fantastic solo, just with nerves. I mean, just like <laughs> he was just nervous, you know. But he he came up with these brilliant bits of guitar playing, which you don't have to do now because you can you can record over hundreds of tracks on your computer. This is totally unrelated in a way, but I watched the movie The Young Ones not too long ago, maybe about a year ago. First time I ever watched it. Yeah. And recently, I watched Summer Holiday. Now. The shadows are in those movies, but, you know, Cliff will perform with the shadows. Then he gets off stage and he has his adventures with another group of guys, mm -hmm. Melvin Hayes. It'll be Richard O'Sullivan. Yep. Why, why w weren't the shadows, the group of guys that he was having the adventures with? We couldn't act. Okay. <laughs> we were, we were still learning our guitars. But what we, what we were doing at the times then we were writing songs. We had started to write, you know, songs in, in a serious way, really. And, uh, you know, the, the problem with filming, David, is they'll get you there at 7 o'clock in the morning in full drag, you know, makeup. Right. And then at three minutes to five, they'll say, right, just got time for your shot now. We finish at five. I mean, you've, been, you've been sitting there all day long in, in makeup and everything else. But what we did in that time, we would be we'd be writing instrumentals or songs, you know, in the dressing room. So it was good for us. I mean, we're certainly never actors, you know. I mean, the directors in those days had no idea what to do with a group. Right. They knew what to do. Cliff, he was the star of the film. But in any of those early 60s movies or late 50s, if there was a group involved, it was a nightclub scene. Didn't take, you know, didn't take much thinking from the producers and the directors. Always in a nightclub. <laughs> what, what can we do with the show? Let's put them in a nightclub. Okay. Okay. Yeah. When you were writing these songs, were you writing consciously for, okay, we have to come up with a single for Cliff, we have to come up with a single for ourselves, or were you just writing songs and thinking, hmm, this might be good for Cliff, this might be a good vocal track? How were you doing that? David, we were in a, if you think about it, the Shadows were in a unique position. Cliff Richard was the biggest star in the country by far. He was selling millions of records. So any writer would want Cliff to record their song. And we were just next to him. You know, every little, every little bit of tune we came up with, or half a song, we'd, we'd just play to Cliff and say, what do you think of this, Cliff? 
And he'd say, oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, finish that off. I like that. I'll record it. Or, oh, no, I don't, don't quite like that. So we were, we were, we had this in to the biggest star in the country. And most times he recorded everything we wrote, most times. And we had some massive hits with him. Yeah. Yeah. Some of my, As writers. Yeah, some of my favorite records are the ones yeah. you guys uh, wrote for him. So the next cut on this album is one that you didn't write. This is The Return of Jerry Lorden, 1962. It's Wonderful Land, a number one record. Eight weeks, Eight weeks. at number yeah. one. to have this long gestation period so it was recorded in the summer of 61 and then strings were added to it in january of 62 yeah i thought we'd had it in the can for about a year hmm. jerry came to us jerry lord and again came to us and said i've got this another one i've got this tune can i play you this tune and he played it to us on a piano he was a sort of pianist play this so we said oh yeah we love that love that uh, love the melody so we did an arrangement. We sat in the rehearsal room and, and did an arrangement of it. And we had really, really high hopes. We thought this is another Apache. It's another one of those incredible melodies, you know. Yeah. And um, so we, the four of us, played it, and uh, it just didn't. It didn't give us that Apache feeling. Now we didn't know what was wrong. We just, you no, know, we played it right. Hank sounded his guitar was fantastic and everything else. We said, it's not quite right. So anyway, no, I said, well, we'll go on to the next thing. So months go by, months and months. And we were on tour in Australia and New Zealand, and we got a message from Norrie. And he said, when you come back, guys, when you come into Abbey Road, I've, I've done something to Wonderful Land. So, you know, we got over the jet lag, went up to the studio, and we just sat in there, and he said, put it on. And suddenly it went, you know, strings, French horns, girls' voices. It was unbelievable. We just went, wow, <laughs> wow. It is, you know, for its time, 1962, it was staggering. And uh, as you mentioned, it was eight weeks number one. It holds the record, even today, for the, for the biggest instrumental at number one. It was just absolutely beautiful. And Norrie arranged all these things, strings, French horns, and that's what was missing. <laughs> yeah. Everything was missing. You know, <laughs> uh, everything was missing. And Norrie did that. We were just thrilled to bits, thrilled to bits. Yeah. It, ha yeah, it has a very cinematic, widescreen <laughs> kind of sound oh, with yeah. Um, yeah. the strings. It's with beautiful. Strings. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a mega tune. I, I tell you, as a, as a guitar player now, you know, I'd never, I didn't realize that many chords existed in any one song. <laughs> Jerry played, you know, there was a, six or seven or eight chords. You know, most <laughs> of our stuff was three or four chords. <laughs> quite enough, quite enough for people to learn. But uh, it was just a magic, magic tune, magic tune. Yeah, still is. It is. 
the flip side of that record was Stars Fell on Stockton. This was also written by you guys. I've noticed yeah. that you have a predilection for puns in titles and playing around and coming yeah. up with yeah. humorous, yeah. humorous <laughs> yeah. titles. That was to that was to because they weren't obviously we were an instrumental band. They weren't songs that people can sing. We tried to make uh, whatever the tune was um, make people sit up and at least look at the title and. So, most of the things we came up with, they would smile, you know, or, or be really inquisitive, you know. Um, Stars fell on Stockton, the rise and fall of Flingle Bunt, and of course this that sort of title sent all the Shads fans nuts, you know. Right. Who's Flingle? Who is he? Who's? And it was just just a just a title to make you sit up and listen, you know. Um, but Stars fell on Stockton, we wrote in a funny place called Stockton on Tees, which is in the north of England. So it came out in 62. So this would have been during 62. We were doing a season up there. And again, we'd be sitting around writing something. And uh, we needed a B-side. Um, we just came up with this tune. That, but recording it was very funny, very hard, because we had this whistling thing in, you know, mm. whistle. Can't even do it now. We couldn't do it then. As soon as we started to whistle a little bit, we all fell on the floor. You know, we had to stop the track, and start again. Because when four guys around a mic trying to whistle, looking at each other, is uh, not a good idea. Not a good idea. So, yeah. So it's just a, it's just a bit of fun, really. That was. It was just a bit of fun. We need a B side. We need a track. You know, and um, up we came with that. But I think uh, when you listen to the the little. It only lasts about 20 seconds, but it always makes me smile. It always makes me smile. Ah, it's wonderful. You know, I, I'm assuming for uh, a young guy in Britain, the stars fell on Alabama probably sounded very exotic, whereas no. stars fell on Stockton, maybe not so much. That's where we got the idea from the title. <laughs> right. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> we don't want the mayor of Alabama on the phone. Right, exactly. So the next cut on this album is Guitar Tango, huge hit number four, written by George Leiferman and Norman Maine. And mm. this, we've talked about on uh, various episodes when we've mentioned this, this was somewhat controversial, this record. This was almost scandalous because it was a departure from the Shadow Sound. Exactly, that's what it was. We we just loved the tune. Um, I think they, they used to send me the most of the songs or most of the tunes to listen to 
And um, I think this was a French a French tune from, from memory. We just love the we love the tune, the basic tune. Hank said this this sort of tune is not really for the echo box. He said it's more a purist, you know, Spanish guitar type stuff, acoustic guitar. So um, as you know, we we recorded it on acoustic guitars, and uh, Nori worked his magic again. He, he we left it when it was just the four of us, the track. And Nori said, I'm putting bits of pieces on it later in the week. Come in and I'll... Anyway, we went back to Abbey Road and listened to what Nori Paramore had done to her guitar tango. And of course, he put the, the horns on, the strings again. Well, it, was a, it was like another wonderful land moment. We went, wow, wow. <laughs> you know, when you're just a force of playing, you, know, you never think, you don't envisage this orchestra playing with you, right. if you like. So, but when that we, uh, when we released it, um, all the sort of knowing um, reporters from the music press said, "Oh, they've done it this time. They've uh, they've lost the plot this time. You know, where's the where's the shadow sound? Where's the great this that and the other?" Anyway, it was a big hit. Well, you know, my theory on that is, if you can do it, why not? You know, if. Yeah. <laughs> People will make yeah. that criticism of, of everybody in music when they do something a little different. Uh, you know, if, if you're able to do it and do it well and it's good, why not do it? Well, we did it. I think that's the only time we did it. But, but, but the track was suited by, you know, the, the trumpets and everything else and the strings. And it just worked. Um, so we're very happy we did it. And it, I think it got number four, I think. Or something like it that. was number four. Yeah. Four, yeah. So, so the next uh, track on this album, next to last, the penultimate track, is The Boys. By you, Hank, and Brian, who had just joined the group at this time. Correct. And this was for the film. And on this show, we actually watched the film and reviewed it. Goodness me. Um, we got nothing better to do. <laughs> that's That could be the subtitle of this podcast. <laughs> nothing better to do. So we watched the whole thing. And the, the shadows are not really featured. There's like a scene where someone's playing it on the radio. Um, there's a scene where it's played at the, at the dance hall, but it's, it's similar to FBI. Um, I, well, you know boys. why, you know why? Cause it goes donkey, donkey, dunk, dunk, dunk. Right. Exactly. That's the rhythm guitar again. Dinky dink. You know, well, I think we said to ourselves, it's, you know, I, I'm not sure I watched the movie the whole way through, but it was little gangsters and young kids and all that. Anyway, somebody said, can you write something like FBI? You know, that famous saying, we want something like FBI. So we rewrote FBI, you know, dinky dinky, dickity dinky dink. Oh, that's a good start. What's that? That's the rhythm part. Now you do your bit, Hank. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's similar. Um, Brian played big, big timpani, I think, from memory. But it was a, it was a hit in Australia, evidently. Oh, thank you, okay. Australia. Thank you, Australia. <laughs> 
when Brian joins the group, normally when there's a new member, there's a period where they kind of have to get in their good graces and eventually they start maybe writing songs. But right off the bat, Brian is oh, contributing. Huge drummer. Fantastic drummer. There were two great drummers of that period in, in London at the time. Tony Meehan, obviously, and Brian Bennett mm-hmm. was the other one. Um, and Brian Bennett was Marty Wilde's drummer, Marty Wilde in the Wildcats. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was also what we call a session drummer, David. You know what a session yes, drummer is. Yes, of course. You could do sessions for people. And um, when Tony left, we were a bit scared of losing the original members of the band, if you like. We said, well, what about Brian? You know, we, we already know Brian. And this is, this is a true story. It's going to sound ridiculous. So Tony was leaving, and... I knew Brian, so I rang him, or rang his wife. I said, can you get Brian to give us a call, please? This is to, I'm going to get onto money here, which sounds ridiculous now, but you're talking about 1961. 61. Right. So Brian called me back. I said, what are you doing, Brian? And he said, why? I said, well, what are you doing? Are you busy? He said, I'm just about to play drums, start a season with Tommy Steele. Now, Tommy Steele was the first English rock and roller, big, big star. And I said, oh, how much is he paying? How much are you getting for, you know, a week? And he said, oh, 25 pound a week. You know, that was big money in like 61. Yeah. I said, double it and get on the train. You're going to join the shadow. And that, that's the real money. He joined on 50 pound a week. And we, Hank and I, Hank and I kept him on that for 15 years. You didn't realize. <laughs> but it's a, it's a true story. And of course, he is a, a brilliant drummer, brilliant. And he, he was a writer, you know, he loved writing, but a great drummer. He played, uh, he was on Eddie, he played on the Eddie Cochran tour when Eddie Cochran was killed. Played for Marty Wilde, you know, Tommy Steele. Everybody loves his drumming. We were, we were a big, a big um, awards thing in London, music awards about or 15 years ago, I suppose. And all of the industry were there, getting their awards in the afternoon, a big lunch. And stars of the day were there, George Michael and all these sort of people picking up their awards. Anyway, we had a table for 10, and Phil Collins was there. Phil Collins was getting every award going that day, I think. And he walked past, this room held a 1,000 people, so a lot of tables. And he, as he came past our table, he just glanced across and saw Brian Bennett and he stopped. This was on the way to get his awards. And he said, Brian Bennett. And he said, yeah, I feel. And, and he bowed down to him. <laughs> Phil Collins bowed down to Brian Bennett. And he said, man, I wish I could play drums like you. Wow. True story. High praise indeed. Yeah. Well, we're up to the last song on The Shadows' Greatest Hits, released in 1963. Mm. This this is certainly not the last hit. You you guys would continue to have hits after this uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Greatest Hits album. But this song is Dance On, which at the time would have been your most recent number one record. Correct.
was written by the Avons. Yes, a singing group. And there was a vocal version of this too, right? Yeah, there was a girl called Kathy Kirby. Um, after the Shadows version, uh, she had a hit with it as well. The vocal version, yeah. yeah. So a good tune, but I've got a lovely story about this particular record. Yes. So in those days, David, all the groups, you know, from the late 50s and certainly through the 60s, we knew each other. We would meet on, you know, on motorways and, you know, coming back from gigs at two o'clock in the morning, we'd be in restaurants somewhere on a motorway. and Nightclubs, you know, we got a nightclub. So we knew uh, everyone. So we've been going four years. The Shadows have been going four, Cliff and the Shadows have been going four years. Mm-hmm. When Love Me Do came out. And we said, wow, I don't know who this is. New band, you know. But... Um, they sound really, really different, really good. And then they came out with Please Please Me, of course. So we'd met them in dressing rooms and things, and I said, look, one day I said, we're having a party at my place. They were playing in a place called Lewisham in London. They said, can we come on after the after the gig's over? I said, yeah, yeah, you'll be there by 11 or 11.30. So Beatles come back to my house, my first house. Sounds ridiculous now. I paid... I think it was six thousand pounds for this little mansion. <laughs> anyway, they all came back, and at the end of the day, as you do after a few jars, John and John Lennon and myself liked a, a drink at the time, and we said, uh, "We said, do you want to hear our new single, The Shadows' new single?" And they said, "Yeah, yeah." So I had a couple of acoustic guitars, so we sat on the stairs, and Hank and I played, you know, down, 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 down. You know, hmm, yeah, that's good, really good. <laughs> and he said, do you want to hear, John and Paul said, do you want to hear our new single? I said, yeah, yeah. And they went, if there's anything that you want, is this, you know, from me to you? And we went, right. yeah, it's okay, it's okay. Not sure if it's a hit, but, you know, <laughs> joking, obviously, joking. Yeah. And, um, well, 63 was Beatlemania for them. I think we had... Uh, two or three number ones in, in um, 1963 with the Summer Holiday and Dance On, Foot Tapper, yes. uh, Atlantis, that sort of stuff was all big. So we both had an amazing 1963. And, you know, for me, as an American, I'm only recently coming to this music. And I've told my, my story on the podcast that I had discovered a in the early 80s uh, a Cliff Richard Greatest Hits album. And I slowly put the story together, but it was only fairly recently within the past five years or so that I started really digging into these records and trying to find this stuff, which I have to have imported usually (laughs) from the UK. And I just want to thank you for all of these songs. Everything we're talking about, all of these songs are now some of my favorite music ever. So thank you for doing that. You've got to get you've got to get out more. You've got to get out more, David. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm too busy watching the boys that movie. You know, this is sixty years ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, it still holds up. You know, it's a testament to you guys. It's also a testament to Malcolm Addy and yep. Nori Paramore that it sounds as great as you know. We're talking about one track mono, but it sounds incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I just wish, you know, as a, as a pro now, or a pro then, you know, I was a fan like 
everybody was of you know Buddy Holly was one of my idols, the Everleys, and I used, I would listen to things like uh, um, Neil Sedaka. You know, I was in my calendar go, right? And, he, and I'm thinking thinking to myself, he's singing with himself. He's singing about two or three times with himself. How does he do that? Buddy Holly was singing with himself in 1958. And, and I said to EMI, why, why can't we put another voice on or why can't we do this? They didn't have the equipment then. But you would get, you know, Norman Petty in a, in a little Texas studio recording Buddy Holly using two machines running together. And, uh, and New York for Sadaka, a much, much better equipment than Abbey Road had at the time. So um, I'd love to have had the equipment much earlier. Well, eventually, uh, you know, by the time the Beatles got around to doing Sgt. Pepper, uh, they had four track. So yeah. <laughs> it took it, it. They were still they were still a little bit uh, behind. The Beach Boys had four track. They got it from the Beach Boys, you know, the Beach Boys. But in America, you had very clever producers and engineers. They would bounce four track to another four track to another four track. So the Beach Boys were recording on like 12 tracks, you know, vocals. That's that's why they've got this fantastic backing vocal stuff, you know, and, and we were right. never able to do that. Bring back mono, I think. <laughs> Not. <laughs> right. Anyway, listen, it was absolutely good fun and great to talk to you. And if you're in London, give us a shout, give us a call. Once again, my thanks to Bruce Welch for appearing on the show this month to talk about The Shadow's Greatest Hits, and my thanks also to previous guest Jim Nugent for facilitating that interview. I really appreciate that. And folks, we will be back next month with another Greatest Hits compilation. We're going to be reviewing Cliff's hit album with our guest Fred Velez, who is best known, certainly online, for his work with the Monkees. And he, for a time, worked with Davy Jones. They collaborated on a book. He is a recent convert to Cliff Richard and the Shadows. So I always like to get those opinions and thoughts from people who are coming at this relatively new. You know, I like a fresh perspective, too. So we're going to be chatting with him next month on the program. In the meantime... It's we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. Join us over on our Facebook page, We Say Yeah. That's two years in the books. Here's to year number three. And uh, we'll see you next month. We say yeah. We say yeah.